Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast. I'm your host, Jill. And today I have with me Dr. James Rosenbaum. For the last six months, he has been the Senior Vice President for Research at Corvus Pharmaceuticals in Burlingham, California. Prior to that, he had an academic career that included chairing the Division of Rheumatology at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. Much of his career has been devoted to the relationship between inflammation in the eye and in the joint and the role that bacterial products play in that inflammation. He is the author of roughly 650 peer-reviewed papers or book chapters. He has been honored by rheumatologists with awards that include the American College of Rheumatology Distinguished Service Award and its Clinician Scientist Award, and twice by the Rheumatology Research Foundation with its Innovative Research Award. He has also been honored by the ophthalmic community with awards that include the gold medal from the International Uveitis Study Group Foundation, the Friedenwald Award from the Association for Research in Vision and Ophthalmology, and the Von Zilli Award from the German Ophthalmologist. Ophthalmolog Hang on. The Von Zilli Award from the German Ophthalmological Society. He is a magna cum laude graduate of Harvard College, and he graduated from Yale Medical School with honors. Dr. Rosenbaum. Thank you, Jill. Thank Very you. This is fantastic. And I'll give you another award, which is your commitment to the Spondylitis Association of America. Uh, and we know each other well from board meetings. But today... Mm -hmm. We are going to dive into uveitis, which is often associated with ankylosing spondylitis. And I would love you to tell us, what is uveitis? Great question. Great start. So uh, uvea is the Latin word for grape. And early anatomists in Rome thought that if they peeled off the outside of the eye, it was a grape-like structure. And when you put the suffix itis next to a noun, you get uveitis. It means inflammation of the uvea. So inflammation anywhere in the middle of the eye is a uveitis. And the uvea has a front part, which is the iris. So iritis is a type of uveitis. And it has a posterior part, which is the choroid, which is adjacent to the retina. So chorioretinitis or retinochoroiditis, those are also forms of uveitis. It's funny, you know, the, the eye is only about two and a half centimeters from front to back, so it's about an inch, but it's incredibly varied. So the, the embryology of the front of the eye is like skin, and the back of the eye is like the brain. Um, so the diseases that tend to affect the posterior uvea can be very different from the diseases that affect the anterior uvea. That's fascinating. I've never heard it termed like that. And right when we think of spondyloarthritis, we don't really think of our eyes. Why do patients with AS get uveitis? Wow, wonderful question. I've only been working for 40 years on that question. 
Um, it, so the short answer is it, it's not completely known, but there are a number of viable hypotheses. So there are proteins in the eye that are also present in the joint. So one is type two collagen, one is a substance called agrican. And if these diseases are autoimmune, that is if your body's immune system is attacking agrican, it would make sense that it would cause joint inflammation and eye inflammation. Um, it, there's a, a paper that came out in the journal Nature just about two months ago, and it used incredibly sophisticated science, really high-tech approach to analyze the lymphocytes that were present in the joint and in the eye of patients with ankylosing spondylitis. So, you know, lymphocytes include T cells that are educated in the thymus and B cells that are educated in the bone marrow. And both of those types of white blood cells are like guided missiles. They, they have receptors on their surface so that they can target very, very specific proteins or antigens. It turned out that this, these scientists, Stanford, Washington University, some in Moscow, some in London, they were able to figure out which proteins were being targeted by the white blood cells in the joint and by the white blood cells in the eye from patients who had inflammation in the joint and the eye with ankylosing spondylitis. It turned out that the cells that were in the eye recognized many of the same things as the cells that were in the joint. And they turned, tended to recognize two things. Sometimes they recognized an autoantigen, something from our bodies. So it would make that an autoimmune type disease. Um, and sometimes they recognized bacterial products. Um, and I think at a, a later time, you and I are going to talk about the microbiome and yeah. the possibility that bacteria are the trigger for ankylosing spondylitis. But um, the eye and the joint do have this commonality. And in fact, um, when I talk with my trainees, I ask them to give me a list of something like the 16 diseases where uveitis and arthritis coexist. I'm not sure that I could give you all 16 right off the, the top of my head, but it's a long, long list. Um, so they do have a connection and the connection in ankylosing spondylitis might be different from the connection in a disease called sarcoidosis or a disease like Crohn's disease, it, who knows? But there are proteins in common in both locations and there may be bacterial substances in common that trigger inflammation in both locations. Fascinating. The gut comes up again, right? right. Uh, so symptom, well, I guess first is iritis or posterior uveitis more prevalent? Is one more prevalent than the other? You mean in ankylosing spondylitis or in general? Yeah. Uh, in ankylosing spondylitis. Right. So um, yes, overwhelmingly, ankylosing spondylitis is associated with an anterior uveitis. Okay. Interestingly, you know, there are other spondyloarthropathies like psoriatic arthritis and the arthritis with inflammatory bowel disease. And they also have an association with uveitis, usually anterior, 
But sometimes the middle part of the uvea, which is called an intermediate uveitis, is also seen with psoriatic arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease, much more likely than it would be with ankylosing spondylitis or with axial spondyloarthropathy. Okay. And if I was going to, uh, if I was having some eye trouble, what kind of symptoms would I be having? So I have a mnemonic for you. Uh, RSVP. You, if you had a serious eye problem for which you should see the eye doctor, R stands for redness that's persistent, S, sensitivity to light, change in vision, or pain. So, you know, we get red eyes all the time. We get red eyes if we cry, we get red eyes if we rub our eyes. So redness by itself wouldn't uh, prompt you to go see a physician. But persistent redness is not normal. And then anytime your visual acuity changes, you're actually having pain as opposed to just an irritation or a scratchiness, or if looking at the light bothers your eye, that means that there's something wrong with the dilating mechanism in the eye, which is usually secondary to an inflammation. So RSVP is a mnemonic that we actually share with all the patients in our clinic. I love that. I think every rheumatologist should use it. <laughs> uh, does uveitis occur at different stages throughout the progression of ankylosing spondylitis? Great question. So um, many times uveitis is like the canary in the coal mine. It's, it's what tells us that someone has ankylosing spondylitis. So Uveitis with ankylosing spondylitis is almost always kind of dramatic the way it starts. It starts suddenly, you wake up and all, you realize that your eye is red and it hurts and you, you, know, you don't want to look in the light. Whereas the arthritis is so indolent, so insidious in its onset. So many patients have had back pain for years, assume that everyone in the world has back pain, it's just part of living. And then the iritis comes along, <clears throat> excuse me, and bingo, if you go to the right ophthalmologist for your iritis, the ophthalmologist is astute enough to say, so tell me how long, Ms. Miller, has your back been hurting you? So generally, the, the, the spinal problem comes first and the eye disease second, but oftentimes the eye disease is what tells us that the back pain is really a chronic inflammatory process. Interesting. And I do have a curveball question. Could uveitis be mistaken for chronic styes in the eye? Well, or is that a very different? You know, I like, I like to say that ophthalmologists have the most wonderful privilege. And that is with the biomicroscope that we use to examine the eye, which is called a slit lamp, we see inflammation. So I was, my training is as a rheumatologist. And if I wanted to know if a joint was inflamed, I would place a needle into the joint, remove fluid, have the fluid examined under a microscope and see how much protein is in the fluid and how many white cells are in the fluid. And something like, uh, a meniscal tear would have no inflammation virtually, 
Osteoarthritis has very little inflammation, but gout, reactive arthritis, the arthritis with psoriasis, the arthritis with ankylosing spondylitis, that would be an inflammatory fluid. Okay. So we're looking for cells and protein. And I've gone on a, a tangent here to, to I'm going to get to the answer of your question. Okay. Um, but with a slit lamp, if there's a uveitis, an anterior uveitis, an iritis, I can see cells. I can see individual white blood cells and I can count them. So I can semi-quantify the intensity of the uveitis and I can know without, with absolute certainty that there's an inflammation. And I actually can see protein. So proteins themselves generally are too small to, to see, but the protein acts like fog. You know, if, if you're driving your car and the night is foggy, you see that headlight beam as it goes through the fog because the fog is particulate. And with the slit lamp, I create something like a headlight beam and I see that headlight beam as it goes through the space in the front of the eye. And so I can tell how many particles there are roughly. I mean, not, I can't tell you there are 2 billion, six, you know, I can tell you though that there's a lot of protein or no protein or, you know, very little protein. So the protein results from increased vascular permeability, increased blood vessel permeability, which is a hallmark of inflammation. And I can absolutely distinguish a sty, which is on the outside of the eye in the lid and is not gonna cause any cell or protein in the anterior chamber, the latter being the hallmarks of uveitis. Gotcha. And would it, would a healthy eye wouldn't show any signs of uveitis? only about one person in a thousand at any given point in time has a uveitis and a healthy eye should have zero cells and zero protein. You know, when um, a neurologist will perform a spinal tap, if someone's having say intractable headache or they want to analyze what's going on in the brain and the spinal cord. And again, the neurologist is looking for cells and protein. And if everything's healthy, almost no protein, almost in, and zero cells. And the front of the eye is exactly the same. Almost no protein, no cells. So we say there's a blood brain barrier that keeps the protein in the cells out of the spinal fluid. There's a blood aqueous barrier that keeps the cells and protein out of the front of the eye. There's a blood synovial barrier so that normal synovial fluid has very few cells and very little protein. That's fascinating. I have to say that the question about the sty was a personal experience. <laughs> and only because as a kid, I used to get them and my dear grandmothers never took me to the eye doctor. They just said, stick a tea bag on your eye. Mm -hmm. And I often wondered if that was an early sign of my disease. Uh, no, no. And, no. you know, uh, uh, probably a, a warm soak is still something that we would, would use. So, yeah. Interesting. Um, they gave you good advice. Yes. Uh, so ankylosing spondylitis falls under spondyloarthritis. Is there a certain type of spondyloarthritis where there's a higher occurrence of uveitis than others? Um. Well, let, let's define terms. So axial spondyloarthropathy is a big umbrella 
that includes ankylosing spondylitis. And axial spondylar arthropathy is the newer term because um, some rheumatologists were astute enough to say, you know, you don't have to have x-ray changes in the sacroiliac joints to make this diagnosis. The studies on how frequent uveitis is in non-radiographic ankylosing spondylitis, which would be axial spondyloarthropathy, they're not as, as thorough or as numerous, but um, if someone's HLA B27 positive, they are much more likely to have iritis than someone who's B27 negative. I think axial spondyloarthritis has helped us realize that there are a lot of people with who are B27 negative who have axial spondyloarthropathy. Um, other than that, um, patients with psoriatic spondylitis, it, it, they're, they're much less likely to have iritis than straight ankylosing spondylitis. And patients with inflammatory bowel disease spondyloarthritis are also much less likely. So it's Ankylosing spondylitis that is B27 positive, um, they're the most likely. And, and in one study, a wonderful genetic study, um, a little over 50% of people in a lifetime will have an episode of iritis. So, uh, you know, the spinal disease tends to be continuous and long lasting. The iritis tends to be episodic and fairly short lived, meaning that an episode, an attack might be a couple of days, but it would certainly resolve within two to three months at most in most circumstances. So um, it's not like you have iritis continually, usually with ankylosing spondylitis, but at least two thirds of the people have more than one episode. Okay. And if you're starting to experience symptoms under the RSVP, uh, would you call your rheumatologist or who would you call? <laughs> well, so the mainstay of therapy for an acute attack is usually an eye drop that's a form of prednisone called prednisolone acetate. And for my patients who have recurrent episodes, I let them self-medicate because they know when it's starting. And actually the, the antecedent, the time right before it begins is called the prodrome. Sometimes with a slit lamp, I can't even tell that it's there and the patient will know that it's there. So the patient needs to call neither. If this is the first attack, by all means, the ophthalmologist is much better and in the best of all possible worlds, one would get in to see that ophthalmologist within 24 to 48 hours. Um, if it's you know something that's occurred recurrently and you've got a drill and you know what to do, then the rheumatologist might be okay. But there, there also are some complications with iritis. So the pressure can sometimes go up. And a rheumatologist wouldn't have the tools to measure the pressure. Or the pupil can get stuck in one position because all the protein makes the fluid sticky in the eye. And that pupil getting stuck, sometimes it'll zip up the iris. It'll go all the way for 360 degrees. And then the fluid in the eye can't follow its normal flow pattern. 
So that can be very serious. And that's something again, where an ophthalmologist needs to deal with it. So if I had my druthers for an iritis attack, I would definitely go to an eye care specialist. Um, but um, if I'd had lots of attacks and I had a relationship with the rheumatologist and I needed more medicine or whatever, I, you know, the rheumatologist should be somewhat knowledgeable, usually not as knowledgeable as an ophthalmologist. So, and the attacks are, are such that the sooner you start the treatment, the more likely you are to prevent any damage from the attack. So if you're planning uh, a trip to Europe, uh, a cruise around the world, a little junket to South America, you should have a bottle of that prednisolone acetate with you to, to take along. Yeah, I'm sure that comes in handy for a lot of people on vacation. <laughs> uh, is there anything that someone who maybe has never had uveitis or iritis can do to reduce the occurrence of it if they know that they're HLA B27 and positive and have ankylosing spondylitis? Well, it, let's say someone has had an attack and has recurrent attacks, say three attacks a year for five years in a row. There are some medicines that help prevent it. One is sulfasalazine. Um, and then the monoclonal antibodies against TNF, which would be like Remicade and Umira, forgive me for using the, the trade names, Symphony and Simsia, each one of those will help prevent attacks, not so much the Embril. Uh, embril is not as effective for iritis as the antibodies. Embril is a soluble receptor. Um, but, you know, you, you wouldn't, and I don't know what the cost of, of Umira is right now, 50 to $70,000 a year without insurance, I think. You, you wouldn't take a drug that had potential to cause serious infections and great expense and required an injection to prevent something that you'd never had and had probably a 50% likelihood in your lifetime of never having. So it, it's matching the, the punishment with the crime. You know, if, if you're having three attacks a year and each attack is lasting two months and every time you have an attack, you're, you know, you can't uh, deal with light in a room and you want to stay home from work and uh, you're miserable, then you think about using something like sulfasalazine and you think about tailoring the medicine for your joints to the medicines that are optimal in preventing the iritis. But if you've never had iritis, um, you know, a, a preventive, preventative approach is rarely taken. Okay. And this falls in line with, we've had some other discussions with other rheumatologists talking about, it's so important to talk through your whole medical history with your rheumatologist because it can guide the treatment planning. Absolutely. And this is definitely a big one, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> and when you and I have a chance to talk about poop, about the microbiome and the bacteria yeah. in our gut, you know, based on that observation that the white blood cells in the eye were recognizing a bacterial product, 
um, maybe one day we'll be sophisticated enough to know something about diet or behavior that would allow us to reduce the potential UV itogenic bacteria in our gut. So uh, that might be a preventive, you know, a dietary preventative strategy would make more sense than a medication preventative strategy. Sure. But and fancy I, eye drops that, or other things are not going to change your course. No, using eye drops as a way to prevent, um, we don't have any data for that. And, you know, get a good night's sleep, reduce stress in your life. Very simple things to do, right? Yeah. Uh, these are good things for your immune system and they affect any immune system disease. It's just not easy to, to achieve those goals to get rid of stress and anxiety and improve your sleep pattern. Yes, I can concur on that one. <laughs> um, well, this has been amazing. Uh, thank you for going through that with us. Uh, again, I so appreciate your commitment to this community. And I have one final question, which is, of all that you know about this disease, what do you find to be most hopeful for the future of people living with it? Uh, the topic that we'll discuss in the future, the microbiome. <laughs> I, awesome. I, I, I do think that, that the microbiome will end up being the key, but you know, it remains to be seen. It's, it's certainly not proven yet. Yeah, but we're making progress. We are definitely are making one, progress. One research project at a time. <laughs> so thank right. you so much, Dr. James Rosenbaum, for visiting you, with Mel. me today. And I am so looking forward to the gut microbiome discussion. So am I. Thank you for your time. Take care. All right. Thank you. SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit, educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.